Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. That music you hear under me is done by Sam Brandt, my son, an extremely talented artist, an accomplished artist you'll hear more of as we go. This podcast, as always, is presented by betonline.ag. They're your online sportsbook experts, the exclusive partner of Podcast One Sportsnet. Use that promo code PODCAST1. Receive a 50% sign-up bonus today. That's betonline.ag. You're going to love my guest today. She is Amy Trask, the former executive CEO of the Oakland Raiders, longtime right-hand person to Al Davis, and just named one of the top 100 influential people in the NFL by Sports Illustrated. As we enter the NFL's 100th season, I'm going to love hearing, you're going to love hearing me and Amy talk. We are longtime confidants, have been in the league in similar positions, and now have similar roles in media, kind of breaking down what goes on inside the curtain and NFL offices. Amy Trask, ahead on the podcast. First, my rant of the week. As we start the NFL season, the 100th NFL season, this iconic season with my team, my former team, the Packers Bears tonight, it's Thursday, September 5th, what an exciting night it is to see Aaron Rodgers. I do think, uh, you know, there has been unfair criticism towards Aaron in the past. And what I can say is that I'm biased. There's no question. I have to give you disclosure there. I'm biased, was there when we drafted Aaron, was there when we signed Aaron his first contract, and those three years with Aaron as a backup. Think about that in this today and age. Does anyone think someone like a Dwayne Haskins or a Daniel Jones is going to sit three years? There's no way. There's no way in hell, in my mind, that they sit one year and they'll be playing at least by the end of the year. So Aaron sat those three years. Uh, People don't realize what a sacrifice that is for a first-round quarterback or any quarterback who's young to just sit there. Now we had extraordinary circumstances with the most durable quarterback in the history of the sport ahead of him and playing in his prime. And of course, what a scintillating star that Brett Favre was and still has to be one of the greatest players of all time. And I was fortunate to be around him for nine years. But around Aaron for three and a half of those years, and Aaron was incredible in terms of right away that wry sense of humor, that ability to not take things too seriously, and of course on the field, his movement skills, his arm strength, his ability to grasp. Uh, And again, I'm biased, but I just think what's happened over the last year is people have criticized him for going off script, for not leading the team in the right way. And everybody's pointing towards this new relationship with Matt LaFleur that's going to go on, start tonight. Everyone's going to be focused on how he adapts to the offense and the new offense and everything else in LaFleur. Now, I was there 13 years ago, part of the team that hired Mike McCarthy, and we had that same exact optimism, excitement, how the offense is going to mesh and Mike McCarthy, and talking to him in the interview, and he talked about playing on the perimeters and doing this and all this offensive wizardry talk. And, and of course, it started with Brett for three years with Mike, and then, of course, we got to Aaron. But uh, that was all the same stuff, you know, and so here we are again. You know, I will say this. Listen, Aaron Rodgers and Mike McCarthy got stale. That happens. And if Matt LaFleur's around in 12 years and Aaron Rodgers is around at age 40, whatever, yeah, that'll be stale too. Uh, 
But things get stale. So here's a refreshing new coach, a refreshing new offense. Aaron Rodgers, clearly to me, the most talented quarterback in the NFL, even more than Mahomes, uh, having an ability to do this. So a lot of excitement about tonight. Packers-Bears is special. I always enjoyed it in a certain way when you played the Bears. You know, it just sort of came alive for you, what was going on 50 years ago when the Acme Packers and the Bears and on the field of Lambeau Field or Soldier Field. And both of those, I was involved in one of those renovations with Lambeau, but both of those renovations were able to keep the facade, keep the old-time feel of the stadium, not let it be one of these mixed stadiums out there. Uh, So kudos to that. So it all opens up tonight. The season starts, as I say this every year, this is the day where the front offices of NFL teams exhale. They're like, our work is done. This team's been massaged and architected and molded for the past six months. And sure, there may be another extension in Dallas. We'll see. But the basic line is it's done. Front offices, scouts, they're on to 2020. Now, 2019, it's turned over to the coaches. It is now the product has been turned over to the coaches. For better or worse, these front offices will sit back and watch the fruits of their labor. And this is the transition time in the NFL. We go from off-season mode to in-season mode, and that's up to the coaches. Front office, again, work as long. Yeah, you'll turn over the bottom of the roster. You'll pick up a waiver wire, maybe even a trade or two before the October deadline. But, hey. It's done, for better or worse. Speaking of which, here we go. As we approach our 100th season, I couldn't think of a better guess than Amy Trask. The former CEO of the Raiders there for almost 30 years, being at the right side of Al Davis. And of course, he's one of those people you talk about when you look at the history of the NFL over 100 years. This is the guy. So much that he embraced that is now kind of de rigueur in the NFL. Uh, and we talk about that with Amy. I talk about her background, what she's doing now with the big three. We talk about the Raiders from her view, the Packers from my view, going to league meetings, how we approached the league in different ways, how we see teams approach the league in different ways, and what's going on off season with Antonio Brown, Odell Beckham, and what's ahead for this season. All that and more with my special guests as we kibbutz for about an hour. Without further ado, Amy Trask. Amy and I share uh, experience as executives in the NFL on much different organizations, which we're going to talk about now working in media and doing other things as well. I think we're kindred spirits, Amy. It's just great to have you back for time number two of many on the Business of Sports podcast. It is a privilege and pleasure to join you. And please know that, as you said, for two very different organizations, a smile lit up my face ear to ear because, yes, we were. (laughs) You know, we'll start there because I just watched, and I'm sure you did too, speaking of your team, Hard Knocks. And the first thing I want to ask you is because when I, I get the call every year from the league, and they'd say, Packers, yeah, we got to have you on. Can you do it? Can you do it? And I'd get into that room with the GM, coach, whoever, and I'd say, hey, guys, what about hard? And before I even get the <laughs> word knocks out of my mouth, I'd hear a summarily say, no, no, no way. 
Well, did you I get that request when, and did you get the same response? Well, I'll answer that in three parts, well, two parts, but first I will confess to you that I have not watched any of Hard Knocks. Uh, okay. It was our final month of the big three leading up to our championship the other day, and I was right. buried in big three work, so I did not watch any of Hard Knocks. But no, Andrew, I never, ever received that call in my years with the Raiders because they knew. They just knew what the response <laughs> would be. And the only difference in the response you got from the one I would have gotten would have been the expletives that would have preceded the we're not going to do it. Richard Deitch asked me to share with him what would have happened had I been asked or had the, had the Raiders been asked while I was with the team to do hard knocks. And I recounted for him in writing that, which I will not say on your podcast for fear of offending your listeners, but there would have been a lot of words that rhymed with truck. And the message <laughs> would have been for me to call my quote, blanking friends at the blanking league office and tell them we're not blanking doing this. So I never did get the call though. You know, we all had our, our little, uh, I don't know if we call it paranoia or inferiority complex about the league. And I always said that, you know, we all think the league treats others better than us. Now, maybe you had better reason <laughs> than we did in Green Bay. <laughs> but the, the basis for our inferiority complex, and you can comment, because was that we had no owner. We're this little team out in this little burg in central Wisconsin. They kind of pat us on our head, go do your, do your thing. And we're like, yeah, yeah, they don't care about us. You probably felt it in a way that was more animus involved than just indifference, right? Right. And you know what? I think your analysis um, is is fair. It's very fair because, you know, you and I sat in those meetings. You're in meetings of one per club or two per club. Yeah. And you look around and you were the team without the, um, you know, equity. You know, you didn't have your equity stakeholders in the room because it's publicly owned. So you didn't have your as the league defines it, a controlling owner there. And, and there was no one to worry about offending or angering or, you know, bothering in our instance, we didn't think they cared about offending us, angering us, bothering us, annoying us, infuriating us. In your case, there was no one person they really needed to worry about doing that to. Yeah, and the thing is, we were good, and we had Favre, and we were a real benefit for them on TV and everything. And we just thought, you know, like they should like they should kiss up a little bit to us. You know, they shouldn't treat us like we're just this little outpost because we're good. But you know, and, you're, and people want to watch. And you're us, absolutely but, you're absolutely right, though, that every single team had its own reason for perceiving that it was getting the short end of the proverbial stick. But I think your comments about um, the manner in which you operated without a single controlling owner are very fair. Yeah, and I sat in that room, and for people listening, you know, it's that uh, horseshoe table or two horseshoe tables, and right. everyone kind of found their place. And I, <laughs> I'm starting to laugh, as you are, because I would be up there with Bob Harlan, who was president of the Packers, right up close. You know, Bob wanted to listen closely, be right next to the commissioner and his, and his lieutenants. And there, the other far corner of the room in the complete <laughs> back 
was Al Davis with his Lieutenant Amy right next to him. And you couldn't have been farther <laughs> from the and, commissioner's and you know what? seat. We were the proverbial kids in the back of the class. Now, I don't know about you when you grew up and when you went to school, but when I grew yeah. up and went to school, it was always the troublemakers that were in the back of the classroom. And I was always the troublemaker, and I was always in the back of the classroom, which is perhaps what, in some people's eyes, made me the perfect raider. But we continued that tradition, back of the classroom, troublemakers. And then we do the roll call now and then, of course, we always fell in line. You know, Bob wanted to do that with the majority. But when there was one abstention or one no, we knew where it was coming from, right? Right. And one of my proudest accomplishments was when I finally convinced Al to let us vote yes or no and stop abstaining. And so, <laughs> you know, so many team, so many teams gave me such grief. Why do you always abstain? Why do you always abstain? And I said, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I'm trying to get Al <laughs> to let us vote. So then I finally convinced him. So we voted no on everything. And I said, see, bet you wish we were still abstaining. Just read a great article, and I'd be remiss before even mentioning the article leading up to it in Sports Illustrated by my good friend John Wertheim was a listing of the top 100 influential people in the NFL as we start the 100th season on that list. The person I'm talking to, I'm so proud of you, Amy. That's such an accomplishment, and uh, congrats. Well, thank you, Andrew. And I, I shared publicly at the time that which I will tell you, and it's as sincere as sincere can be. I was overwhelmed by that. And me, Andrew, me, Amy, me, I mm. was speechless. I was at a loss for words. And as I then later teased Sports Illustrated, I said, I'm at a loss for words for which many, many people thank you. <laughs> exactly. And it talked about Al. I mean, the story by John was so great because it really kind of dove in, as you know better than anyone, how a lot of his quote unquote bold and maverick ways back in the day are now sort of appearing uh, in different forms, different machinations, different versions. But you have the bold Maverick owner and Jerry Jones. You have these new innovations in technology, which he was always talking about. The emphasis on analytics, which at, at that time was more like coaching trends. And you see it, I'm sure, better than anyone where that bold iconoclast back in the day is now rearing its head in different ways today. It is. And, and um, he was ahead of his time in a lot of ways. And look, I know you have so many people around this country and frankly beyond that are enormous Andrew Brandt fans. And they should be because of the work you do is absolutely magnificent. And I marvel, by the way, I'm going to make a little footnote aside here. I marvel at how much you do, whether it's teaching or speaking or writing, you do a, a tremendous amount of tremendous work. But my point in raising how many fans you have is I am well aware that you have fans of all teams and you have fans who hate all the teams, notwithstanding that they are all fans of yours. So some of the people that are listening to this will be Raider haters and they will have hated Al. Um, and that's all a lead up to the fact that one of the ways in which he was a pioneer was, of course, that he hired and fired without regard to race, gender, ethnicity, or any other uh, individuality, which has no bearing on whether one can do a job. And I, I would hope that whether someone hates the Raiders or not, 
didn't like Al or not, we can recognize that that is perhaps one of his greatest pioneering moments or statements. He was indeed. And, and listen, I really appreciate those comments. Uh, you know, it means a lot coming from you. I talked a lot on last week's podcast, some personal thoughts um, in light of Andrew Luck's retirement, because I think Andrew Luck is going to have a bigger life and a more expansive life leaving the NFL. And uh, my name's Andrew. I went to Stanford and I'm a bit of an odd duck myself. And I've had a bigger life in my view since leaving the NFL. And I'm always looking to expand it. And those are things I would never be able to do working as an executive for a team, as you know. So I appreciate that. And I see the same with you, you know, not only your media, but obviously what you've done at Big Three. So I'm back at you, my friend. Well, thank you. And I will take this moment to say that although you and I tease one another about our college rivalries, you having gone to that adorable little junior college and, you know, I went to Cal. <laughs> um, but again, all teasing aside, which I'm doing right now, um, I, I said at the time that Andrew Luck retired, uh, announced that he was leaving the NFL, didn't surprise me at all for the very, very reasons you identified. He was the quintessential student athlete at, and wait for it, Andrew Grant, I'm about to say it, at a magnificent, magnificent university. There we go. And he opted to, and, and it's the truth. I mean, you and I tease, but look, game knows game when it comes to schools. And he opted to stay at Stanford to receive his degree, to earn his degree at, by the way, the School of Engineering. This was not an easy degree, nor is it an easy university. I have all the respect for your university that one could have because it does not grade norm for its athletic programs. So he is worldly, and like you, he is going to go on to have a much, much bigger life than simply staying in the NFL would allow. Yeah, and I talked about, you know, you what you just said. I was there and Speaking in 2011, which is the year he passed up the NFL draft number one, and there's this kid in the student union and leaning over his computer, eating some pizza or something with books strewn out and calculators strewn everywhere. And I kind of pulled up next to him and like, wow, that's Andrew Luck. And, you know, I said, uh, this is a guy that doesn't have a smartphone, it's a guy that used his <laughs> uncle as an agent. This is a guy who has a book club. So I don't say this pejoratively. I just don't think he'll miss football. And uh, a I don't think guy. there's a pejorative thing about that. I, I think I agree with you entirely. And by the way, all of my very sincere compliments about Stanford aside, you want to bet an ice cream on big game? Absolutely. Okay, because then we go either whoever wins. Or whoever loses still wins because we get ice cream. Yeah, I used to bet a guy on our team who, when I was there, was a backup quarterback named Rogers. And uh, <laughs> the bet there was on the next road trip, one of us had to wear the other's uh, other school's colors and uh, jerseys. So you didn't hear it from me, but there was a road trip where Aaron Rodgers was decked out in Stanford gear. Oh, say it's not so. Say it's not so. I don't even <laughs> want to envision that. That's all right. No one knew who he was. He was a backup, and uh, our starting quarterback got on the plane every week wearing cutoff jeans and T-shirts. So <laughs> that's where we were back then. There you go. Um, 
speaking of the Raiders, that you mentioned you weren't watching, and I get it, you know, with hard knocks and everything you got going on. But you've seen the drama, uh, mm-hmm. not the not the drama playing out on HBO, but just the drama playing out every day. And even before we get to Antonio Brown, just you know, what as a as someone who was involved with the organization so much, what do you think when you see the team in the news for reasons not involving you know the games and winning and losing? Well, you know, as well as anybody who's been involved in the league, teams don't like that. They label it distractions. Now, I have my own view of the word distractions. I think that teams throw that around far too often. You know, I recall once flying home from a game and a very, very, very senior uh, assistant coach. He wasn't the head coach, but he was sort of the most senior of the assistants. Had an absolute meltdown because, quote, we didn't have the right kind of candy bars on the plane, and that was a distraction, close quote. And, you know, if you're going to go on a full rant about not having the right kind of candy bars and labeling that a distraction, I've got some serious concerns about your ability to coach. But, you know, that's a pretty extreme example. You know as well as I do, coaches, as a general rule, do not like that which they label distraction. So they don't like shows like Hard Knocks. Now, notwithstanding that I didn't see it, I certainly am familiar with all the storylines. You can't, you know, look at social media and not know, or the internet and not know about the storylines. And, you know, I'm sure it was extra work at camp to have that all become public and teams wish that it wasn't. Antonio Brown's been quite a story there, huh? You know, I may well be proven wrong on this. Um, Certainly this summer would suggest I am wrong. But when the organization signed him, I thought, you know what? Not just did I think, I said publicly, this young man has absolutely every reason to prove to the world, hey, look, I wasn't the problem in Pittsburgh. Look at me here. I'm terrific. I'm a great teammate. I'm not causing any problems, or as my grandmother would have said, as she often said of me, causing a ruckus. Um, I wasn't the issue in Pittsburgh. I still think that may be the case once the season starts, uh, but I certainly would have been proven wrong based on this summer. Yeah, and listen, I don't think we can debate, there's no need to debate that he's high maintenance, and there's also no need to debate that he's going to be a hard worker in practice and a good player on the field. I think the question becomes... What were the Raiders thinking in terms of managing him beyond on the field? Because I get it. You know, we don't you don't have all players that fall in line in any organization and greater talent equals greater tolerance. But I would just wonder, you know, John Gruden and Mike Mayock, what did they expect? You know, it's like what was their expectation on managing this player? And that's what I wonder if this is any way, any way near a surprise to them at this point. Right. And, you know, you're, uh, you know, obviously, you know, this as well as anyone and you articulated it beautifully as you always do, which is they're not mutually exclusive. There can be off field issues, but one can still be a magnificent, productive help as a player. And, you know, you, you said um, talent brings greater tolerance. The expression I always heard in the league was, the bus waits for some people. The bus doesn't wait for everybody. And what that 
was, you know, a shorthand way of saying, if the team buses are leaving for the airport for a road game and the starting quarterback isn't on it, that bus is going to wait for him. But if it's the 53rd man on the roster or someone who's not a big contributor, that bus ain't waiting. So, yes, greater talent is greater tolerance. Um, you know, as to how they went into this or with what plan, I don't know. I don't know if it was Ubris on the part of the organization, which is, we can do this. This is us. We got this. Or if they had a concrete plan or both. Yeah, and it kind of segues us to the field, Amy, that first of all, the off season, there are a lot of stories this off season. You and I have both talked about on on different media platforms one that just stands out to me and is does involve Antonio Brown and another player at the same position, equally as talented, named Odell Beckham. I just still am a bit a Twitter that the Steelers and the Giants, with huge cash and cap ramifications to boot, decided they were better off without these extraordinary talents than they were with them. To me, that that is something that resonates more than any story in the offseason, is that story right there. The Steelers and Giants, too, as you and I know, two of the old line model franchises in the league, decided they're better off with these otherworldly talents without them than with them. Well, you're right, and it may... I mean, you, you again stated it beautifully. There's nothing... In particular, I can add, except for one observation. Well, you know, let me note this. You know, you noted that these are two very um, staid, old line, if you will. I don't remember your exact word, franchises. And I agree with your analysis and your characterization. And that may be part of the reason they did what they did. I, you know, I find the whole OBJ, New York Giants situation, um, even more stunning, if you will, than Pittsburgh's Mm -hmm. decision to move on. You know, and again, I have a very, very, very high bar for what I think constitutes inappropriate behavior. And I was the kid who was labeled a behavior problem in kindergarten. And that label stuck through high school. Some people would say it still applies. So it's with that background, I state that I was never bothered by what Odell Beckham Jr. did on the sideline that other people labeled antics or inappropriate. I thought it was passion. And what stunned me was there he was on the sideline, getting angry, tossing things, kicking things, and people were all a Twitter, to use your word, great double entendre, by the way, even if unintended. And yet at one game last year, we saw the cameras flash up to the owner of the Giants, who was in the press area, I believe on a road game, so angry as I would have been that he got up and threw his chair down and and his chair went clattering to the ground. Mm. So why is doing something on the sideline as a player displaying passion like that considered inappropriate when your owner has just thrown a chair over in the stadium because he's angry at what happened in the game? Um, So I I understand your point as to both teams. I'm, I'm rooting for Odell Beckham Jr. I want him to have a fresh start in Cleveland, and I hope it works out to his benefit. And I think that's something that's changed since my day. I don't know exactly about you guys with the Raiders, but I guess I was really conservative. And it was just more you make your bed, you sleep in it with with cash and cap. In other words, had we done Ah. 
these multiple extensions for Antonio Brown. Forget all the off-field stuff. I'm just talking about cash and cap. Had we paid Odell Beckham a $20 million signing bonus three months before that, I I would have said to our GM and our coach, I'm sorry. We have made our bet here. And, you know, maybe that's an old school approach now. Maybe it's now it's like there's more cap room. We're moving around. It's okay. We'll take the dead money. We just want him out of here. To me, that struck me as kind of a new way, new approach than back in the day, even 10, 15 years ago. Right. You would have said, figure a way to work it out. Yeah. He's part of the team. Figure out how to, how to make it work. And somewhere right now, Al is smiling down at you because that's exactly what he would have done. He would have said to the coach and to the G, you know, well, the GM, he really was the GM, but to the right. football executives, right. make it work. Make it work. We've invested cash. We've invested cap. Make it work. The other thing in the offseason just happened. You know, we get into the season. You and I know better than anyone these last week, days leading up to the season is a flurry of activity. And we've just seen this with trades and activity extensions right at the end of the offseason. On the trade side, you know, we have to talk about Houston. It seemed like, you know, the GM is no longer there. It seems like a coach in charge. Nothing against Bill O'Brien, but those were moves of a coach that was concerned about the here and now, not the sustained success, not long-term, what a GM has to be detached from the present. And again, stunning moves, trading Jadavion Clowney and paying him to go away and acquiring a top left tackle without a contract as a companion deal. So do you feel the way I do? I mean, I, when you saw those Houston trades, what was your thought? Very similar to yours in a number of regards. Obviously, you know, it grabbed me that Houston, you know, it, how do I say this gently? Didn't yeah. seem to be a lot of strategic planning that went into paying a player who is now not on your roster $7 million so he can go play somewhere else. And right. look, you know, there are people who believe about the National Football League and, and the member clubs. Oh, it's just $7 million. It's a rounding error. No, $7 million is $7 million. And irrespective of what percentage of a team's annual revenues that constitutes, $7 million is a lot of money. And I don't know one finance executive or business executive at a team who would have thought, oh, Peshaw, it's only $7 million. <laughs> so that grabbed me, as did the other aspects of the trade that you just noted. And you made the point um, at the outset of what you said about, you know, this is a coach who's looking for ways to win now. You know, ownership of teams has to be careful when asking someone who may feel pressure to win right now to make decisions that are in the best long range or long-term prospects of a team, because if someone feels pressure to win right now, he's not necessarily looking at the long-term best interests because he knows if he doesn't win now, he might not be there in the long term. Totally. And it's, it's a model that's flawed. Now, again, as soon as I say that, I know people are going to say, well, what about Belichick? And yes, that's a model that works. He has 
an ability to do that. And I think because he's so, how do we say this? He's so uh, detached, cold, uh, business-like, where he can be the coach, but pull the purse strings as well. I mean, he is all. I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, you can finish that thought on Belichick, and I'll get to someone else. I, I apologize. I really do. I thought you had uh, finished. I was just going to add, um, and I, I think I interrupted in my attempt to be somewhat silly. Um, he is what would be expressed in Boston as wicked smart. So, and I probably <laughs> right. didn't do that with the appropriate Boston accent, but they would say wicked smart. He really is a brilliant man, and he's also earned the right to have the benefit of the doubt. You right. win that many Super Bowls. You know what? When you make a move and anybody's dubious, you get the benefit of the doubt. Did you play this role in Oakland? Because for four years, when our friend and former Raider, my, for my mentor at Green Bay, Ron Wolf, when he retired, we had a new head coach relatively, but Ron had great uh, confidence in him, and he was basically our coach GM when Ron left. A man that I'm very high on, Mike Sherman. But Mike would tell me, as coach GM, he'd say, Andrew, I'm going to make you the bad guy here. And I said, I get it. I totally get it. You've got to motivate, cajole, inspire as a coach. You can't be telling them negative things about money. I get it. And it was a role that was not an easy one to embrace for me, but it had to be done because he could not be the bad guy. Did you ever have to embrace that role in Oakland? Absolutely, positively, yes, but in a business setting, not a mm -hmm. football setting. And I always feel odd differentiating business from football because, of course, your business is football, but people tend to say business football, so I believe they understand what I mean, even if I'm not comfortable with the differentiation. But the role I – look, people said all the time, you know, I remember we hit some bad years in Al's waning years, and fans mm -hmm. were, you know, hire a GM, hire a GM, and I thought – don't they get it? We have a GM. His name is Al. And right. so, you know, in terms of football and negotiating contracts and, 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 and those sorts of player related matters, I wasn't involved in those. I didn't do any player contract negotiations. I wasn't involved in the salary cap or what people traditionally refer to as football. Now I was involved in the cap only in the sense of, do we have enough cash? How's our cash flow? Can we afford this from a financial standpoint, but not from a salary cap accounting standpoint or a contract negotiation standpoint? But yes, Andrew, I absolutely positively had to play that bad guy role for the almost 30 years I was there in a non-football context. So I feel you. Yeah, it's not easy, but as you and I both knew, it was necessary and someone hopefully with a nice temperament is better doing that than someone that's going to be all over the place. Agreed. Looking forward, you know, we've got the season ahead and my Packers open up now tomorrow against the bears. It's this hundredth season. Do you see this season as, I don't know, you're now in the history books, at least according to sports illustrated. Do you see this as some, something special about this season when you look at it with the hundredth, uh, uh, fixed to it 
when you think of the season ahead, first thoughts? I guess my first thought is a hope that the, for the league, given the sort of magnitude of this anniversary, that the league navigates um, in both an effective and efficient manner and a sensitive and a nuanced manner on field and off field issues. You know, you know, as well as I do that at the league office, the hope is that the focus is simply going to be on the field but you also know as well as I do that there's going to be off field issues. Uh, and I hope that the league navigates those in a manner that resonates well with fans. It's been a byproduct of our conduct commissioner, as I told, as I called him even to his face and not in a pejorative way, it's something he's made such a priority. And I think the unintended consequence of that is, bad behavior gets magnified because he's made it such a priority issue. And maybe that's what you're talking about. It just seems like that stuff gets in the news as much as the good stuff. And maybe that's a fault of the media as well, but it does seem to happen, as you mentioned. Well, it's just distressing because you know, and I know, um, as does anyone who has spent the time in the league that we did, that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of just tremendous men who have played the game, who are playing the game, so former players, current players, but often the attention is on the very, very, very few um, on a percentage basis that do the wrong thing. So many men are out there doing the right thing that I guess that's a better way to articulate my hope, that in this 100th season, we can spend time focusing on all the men, the former players, the current players, who do so much good in their communities, in other communities, rather than focusing on the few who do bad or who do wrong. I guess that's more grammatically correct. When you do your segments for CBS Sports, just a procedural question. You come up with ideas, sort of taking people, as I try to do, inside the ropes, inside the front office, behind the curtain. Producers come to you with ideas or some combination I think it's a combination. Um, there are times mm -hmm. I have ideas. There are times I, and now I know I'm just writing myself a little note right now. Call Andrew. He'll give you ideas. Um, <laughs> there are times I find myself stumped. Um, and, and I think part of the reason I get stumped is, you know, I can skew to what some people would say, the very business nerdy. And I'm yeah. not really sure people want as much business nerdy stuff as I like. So um, uh, we just have a magnificent team of people at CBS Sports, and they help me navigate what people might find interesting. I think you do, by the way, a, a sensational job of that, whether it's with your teaching or your writing. I'm not always um, sure where to navigate the what people want to listen to line. I will tell you this. I love my, t my time at ESPN, but there were times I'd be – ready to go out on set, whether Sports Center or another show, and in my ear, the producer would say, maybe 30 seconds before air, they would say to me these three words, Andrew, dumb it down. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> dumb, dumb it down. Uh, you know, the, I'm laughing because I thought what you were going to say is, Andrew, make it quick. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, you're sitting there and you have something very, very complex to articulate, and you're thinking, 
how do I share everything that it took me five years to figure out in a 20 second sound bite? Mm-hmm. So that's a challenge for me. Um, the very, very first year I was on CBS, the producer said in my ear at one point, you have 20 seconds. Well, I just stopped talking right? because I had no <laughs> idea how long 20 seconds was. So, you know, now I hear in my ear, what's wrong with her? Why isn't she talking? Why do we have dead air? Why isn't she talking? That was the last <laughs> time for the first three years I was on TV, they ever gave me a count in my ear because they were so terrified of what I would do. <laughs> well, you do a nice job. You really, uh, you know, we need people to sort of bring us inside and get behind all the riffraff, the fluff that's sometimes out there. And you're doing writing as well. You know, you've joined me there. How, how are you enjoying The Athletic? I love to write. I, I have always loved to write. At one point in my life, I fancied myself, and I may still do this, a spy writer. Maybe someday I'll write spy mm. novel. Um, I have a great idea for a spy novel that involves the NFL. Um, although I don't think it does anymore because technology has moved on so much. Uh, but in any event, I love to write. I was thrilled, or as my mom would say, tickled pink when the athletic <laughs> contacted me. And I will make clear that unlike you, I am not a regular writer. I contribute from time to time and I love doing it. You know, when I bring up writing with you, my feelings of insecurity and inferiority are consuming me now, Amy, because I have not, even though we talked about this. You got to write time, that book, Andrew. You got to write that book. I haven't started. And I, I always say one day, and that and that's the wrong way to say it, right? Yeah, I just got to do it. And you're my hero. You've done this. And everybody tweets about it. And you have a great following due to it. And it's it's you. I'm just not there. Well, thank you. And I will only say to you, um, to thine own self, be true. You'll do it when you're ready. And you'll do it when it's right. And I will be first in line to buy it. Because I can't wait for your look inside. Yeah. It'll be the uh, uh, next to the Amy Trask book. <laughs> I'll have to figure out how to uh, title it somewhere similar to you. <laughs> well, and I'm sure yours will be less chock full of uh, words I won't say on your podcast because you worked for an organization which was far more genteel in that regard than the one for which I worked. <laughs> well, I may show it to be a little less genteel than maybe you think. So <laughs> that will be Ooh, a, a, that's my little plug for the unwritten book there. Um, you and I both have sort of taken on probably you a little more expansively than I have uh, an opportunity sort of beyond uh, our media and our other things that we do. I've gotten involved a little bit on the agency side. I would not call myself an agent with uh, Gary V, as my listeners know, and, you know, sort of a little more entrepreneurial speaking, think something that was attractive to me and you with the big three and, and tell us about that experience. It's and, and the time and, and what, what drew you to it and has it sort of um, paid off in terms of what you thought would be happening with the big three. It's, it seems to have been such a successful venture so far and I'd like you to talk about it a little bit. What drew me to it is very, very, very easy to articulate. The people with whom I would be working if I enlisted, so to speak. And what I'm about to say, um, I want to be very, very, very careful to note that I understand. I, I fully appreciate that this is a luxury 
and a privilege to be at a point in one's life where one can choose with whom one wishes to work. Not everybody has that luxury and not everybody has that luxury at all times, even if you may have it from time to time. But I had the luxury of deciding um, with whom I wish to work. And when Jeff Plotnitz and Ice Cube, who formed the league together, approached me, uh, that was what excited me, was the opportunity to work with these two men. Jeff and Cube had a vision for this league, and the opportunity to work with them and help this vision become a reality was very exciting. Had people I didn't respect, had people I didn't wish to work with approached me, it would have been a very easy no because I was not looking to get back into anything. I was working with CBS. I was writing a book. I wasn't looking to jump into anything, but the opportunity to work with Jeff and Cube. And now um, after my first year, we just finished our third year. After right. our first year, we added Clyde Drexler as the commissioner. And he is absolutely magnificent. And, you know, Clyde, I, I will say of Cube that as genius a musician as he is as phenomenal a musician is is every bit as phenomenal a businessman and as phenomenal a player as Clyde was he is every bit as phenomenal um, a teammate and uh, an off-court teammate as he was an on-court teammate and and working with them and with Jeff and and our group at the big three has been tremendous we did just finish um, year three and we're looking forward to, to what, what, what's next. Um, I've never worked before with a startup, and that has been very, very interesting and eye-opening. It's obviously quite different than working with an established business like the NFL. What's your day-to-day like with them? And how much time do you spend? How much time do you want to spend? Are you spending as, as too much time than you anticipated or less? Are you good with what you have? And how much? Uh, yeah. How much is that of your I, life? Is that? I'm chairman of the board, so I'm I'm arguably not in a day-to-day operational role. But we are a startup, and we are very, very leanly staffed. And every single one of us, Cube and Jeff and Clyde and and everyone involved with the big three, we just roll up our sleeves and do what we need to do. I apologize. There's dog barking in the background, so I'll move. Um, we just roll up our oh, sleeves and do that. what we need to get done. We don't worry about title. We don't worry about whose responsibility. Everything is everyone's responsibility. And one thing, you know, we are all working a tremendous amount. But one thing I love about working with Cube and Jeff is the same thing I loved about working with Al. It doesn't matter how hard any one of us is working. The people at the top are working even harder than everyone else in the organization. And that's a blast. That's great to hear. Any other projects in the works? Like you don't have enough going on? No, CBS, the big three, the athletic, and, um, you know, I like to talk every once in a while with some beach pictures. I love them. How often are you out there? As often as I can be. Um, and I especially like to send them to people like you when it's sort of, you know, eastern, east coast, you know, people from the middle of the country and east when it's the middle of January, I just like to kind of send those beach pictures out with a little yoo-hoo, hi from California. I know, Amy. But you talk about being in a position to do what you want to do, and you and I are both fortunate there. And one of the things I do a lot is when it gets that way, I get out. <laughs> I go to California, go to Florida, I go to Arizona. <laughs> there you go. I, I hike, I bike, I do what I do. So that's that's been a nice thing. 
Anything else that thoughts that come up about the upcoming season with the NFL? Uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about bargaining. I'll have you on as we get closer to talk uh, sort of a podcast about collective bargaining. But um, I'll just say this. I've been vocal that I hope they get it done, obviously. I don't see a lot of things to give from the union side to get what they need to get, whether that's whatever the list is, revenue split, franchise tag, commissioner power, lack of marijuana testing, all those kind of things. I just don't see a lot to give. So the one thing they have to give is extra games, whether it's 17th game or 18 games or an extra playoff game, whatever it is. So I guess I kind of thumb my nose at those who say, well, they'll never give in on an extended season. But to me, that's the only way they gain concessions out of the league. That's my thought. Your thought. I think. Yeah, I think that's a fair analysis. And whether it ends up at 17 or 18 or extra playoff, as you say, that is um, a very, very large item. So I agree with what you just said. I, too, hope it gets done far more easily than last time. I have a view on negotiations that they don't need to be confrontational. They can be collaborative. And I think it's important. Look, I, you know, I understand the Players Association has a very, very important job to do representing the interests of the players. Of course, I understand that it's important and they need to represent the players vigorously. But vigorously doesn't have to mean hostily or angrily or confrontationally. It can mean right. firmly and strongly and resolutely. And, you know, look, every single person involved in the National Football League, player, coach, staff, executive, uh, management, league office executive, team owner, every single person has a vested interest in not only the, um, not only that the league survive, but that it thrives. So I hope that everybody who is involved in these discussions recognizes that, yes, we may have different views on different aspects of the bargaining relationship, but our common interest is that we get this done and we get this done well with no work stoppage, no hiccups, and that we do our best for the game itself. Yeah, I mean, the talk of work stoppages and lockouts and strikes in two years, to me, that's ridiculous. I mean, it's it's useless. It's futile to talk about. We've extended, they've extended D, they've extended Roger. There's no reason not to get this done. I mean, I think we're saying the same I, thing. We are. Well, I think we are, too. And, and look, I, I actually will go one step further and say, I think it will get done. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it's something where this is, I mean, listen, we've got legalized gambling. We've got media companies coming in way beyond the landscape we, we've dealt with in the past. The digital right. media, media giants are coming in on this, like Google, like Amazon, like Twitter, like YouTube, like Yahoo. I mean, Verizon, It's an, the revenues are going to be just... It's a fraction right now. So, again, I think as long as everyone understands what we're dealing with here, it will get done. Hope so. I think we'll leave it there. Amy, always great to talk to you. It's just like talking to it a is. friend that uh, get together with after a number of months and uh, enjoy it always. Well, the, 
you know, I said it at the outset, I'll say it again, the privilege and the pleasure is mine. Our conversations are always tremendously, tremendously thought provoking. You ask um, just terrific questions that um, are intellectually exciting. So thank you very, very much. It really is um, my delight to join you. Really hope you enjoyed that interview with Amy. Uh, She's great. Obviously, she's uh, someone that's talked about as a leader in sports now. People talk about her as the next commissioner. I'm happy to always have her on the podcast. That was our second time. There'll be many more. Really hope you enjoyed it. Now a word from our sponsor, Bet Online, and here we go. Are you ready for some football? It's happening. Time to get in on all the action. Week one NFL kickoff on the season is here. The wait is over. Make your online wagers at betonline.ag. Take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. All the matchups, of course, I just talked about Packers-Bears. We've got Falcons, Viking, Carolina and the Rams, Pittsburgh, New England. Use the promo code PODCAST1 to get that 50% sign-up bonus today. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. And that'll do it for this week's edition of the Business of Sports Podcast, underscored by Sam Brandt with the new music. Hope you enjoy it. Appreciate all of you that follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt and comments and rankings at Apple Podcasts are really appreciated. Thanks to my producer extraordinaire, Brian Neal. And I'll be back next week with another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt.